told you there was a story uh, that we covered a couple of weeks ago in which the uh, French said, uh, Oh, sovereignty, it is the most important thing. Uh, anytime you touch one of our machines, you have interfered with our sovereignty. Um, uh, and now it turns out that they have been sending out, uh, they, they teamed with Avast to uh, take down a tax structure that mostly had focused on parts of Latin America, and they basically sent out the cure to these machines right. without getting the Peruvian government's authority or anything. The, the Peruvian sovereignty apparently doesn't matter much. That's right. And I just want to note for your listeners that despite the image that it may have been conjured in your mind about Pepe Le Pew with Stuart's <laughs> accent, I can assure you there's no white stripe on Stuart's back. <laughs> so there's a debate in the, in the world of international cyber law about whether sovereignty is violated if you step onto a network versus if you step onto a network and you do something to alter it, to damage it. And some people say the alteration and the damage is the violation of sovereignty. The French said, no, no, no. Just getting on the network, just getting on that other person's lawn violates the sovereignty. And it seems that the French probably take it very seriously when it happens in France. But when they're doing it to most of Latin America, it's no hold. Well, you know, it could be. It's with French police. They say, hey, you know, we're, we're the police. Those guys who write the rules over in uh, the KSA, they just got their heads in, let's say, the clouds. Welcome to episode 282 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here today are not the views of our institutions, our clients, uh, our spouses, or children. Uh, frankly, not even my dog agrees with me. But today I will be interviewing uh, Sultan Meiji, uh, who's the CEO and co-founder of Neocova and an adjunct professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, Sultan, welcome. Thanks so much, Stuart. Great to be here. I met uh, Sultan in uh, Wilton Park uh, in the UK, uh, uh, but I've always had a soft spot, uh, spot in my heart for uh, uh, Washington University because they're the first place that paid me to uh, uh, to give a speech, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it was a very nice um, part of St. Louis. Well, I'm happy to not pay you to come give a speech at, Saint, uh, at WashU as well. Well, that, that, would, that would average it down to closer <laughs> to my usual fee. Uh, all right. Uh, and joining us for the news roundup, uh, Matthew Hyman, senior fellow at the National Security Institute, formerly with the National Security Division at DOJ. Uh, welcome, Matthew. Thanks, Stuart. And uh, uh, a, a podcast favorite, Nick Weaver, uh, senior <laughs> researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and lecturer at UC Berkeley. Uh, it's great to have you, Nick. Thank you very much. And I'd like to add one thing. My opinions are my own, but the NSF does pay for me. Ah, uh, well, yes, of course. Uh, uh, many people pay for me, uh, but uh, are unable to get me to buy their opinions. Uh, uh, sometimes if they pay me enough, uh, they can get me to shut up about something. <laughs> uh, all right. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, uh, we've got a lot of stories to cover, so let's jump right in uh, California's attorney general has released 24 pages of regs implementing the CCPA, the California uh, Consumer Privacy Act, uh, which is a big deal because it is the most sweeping privacy act to have been adopted. Uh, I would say, having gone through these regs, that uh, not a lot of surprises, not a lot of actual deep clarity, uh, certainly not a lot of exemptions for people who uh, 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 were worried that this would turn out to be very burdensome. With one exception, there is a, uh, uh, a pretty detailed discussion of uh, a part of the uh, regs, uh, part of the law that gives people access to their data, allows them to uh, ask that the data be deleted. Uh, um, and that, of course, is a big security hole because people can pretend to be somebody and ask for all their data. Um, a, and um, it's more of a feel-good provision than a real protection for privacy, but uh, it's been part of many privacy laws. Uh, uh, the regulations make it reasonably clear that um, uh, companies can have pretty strict 
requirements uh, if they uh, want to make sure that they're dealing with the person um, whose data they hold rather than somebody who's just trying to social engineer access to the data. So that's a, probably a good thing. Otherwise, I would say not a lot of surprises. Nick, there's another uh, kind of feel-good rule that uh, may turn out to be more complicated uh, than expected, uh, and that's the uh, uh, ruling out of the Ninth Circuit, which the Supreme Court just denied cert on, saying the Americans with Disabilities Act requires that websites be accessible to the blind. At least that's how it's being portrayed. I think it's actually broader than that. Well, what it really comes down to is that the Supreme Court refused to take up the question of, does the ADA apply to commercial activity online? Yes. And truth be told, it should. The, the language of the, of, the, of the law says that if you have a public accommodation, it's got to be accessible. And the question then was, is a website a, a public accommodation? And truth be told, that part is reasonable. The The biggest problem is going to be that um, the term is reasonable accommodation, and there's very little guidance online for what that would actually mean. And the ADA is basically enforced by lawsuits and case law rather than legislative opinion. So this is going to be a lot of lawsuits are going to follow on from this. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to discover uh, that they violated the law five years ago uh, by virtue of decisions that come down tomorrow. Uh, and that's not great. And especially in this area where, you know, um, it, it is very there, – there are many, many disabilities and uh, how to accommodate those disabilities can vary a lot. Uh, um, it is true that if you're blind, it's hard to read websites, but there are readers that uh, uh, people can download that allow them to uh, have text on websites read to them. Increasingly, websites also have video. Uh, you could make an argument that a lot of these websites are reasonably accessible given tools that are generally available to people rather than asking everybody to uh, come up with their own mechanism for reading the uh, the site to uh, to individual people. And of course, even if you read the site to somebody who's blind, that doesn't help if they're blind and deaf. So that raises the question, what are you going to do about people whose disability is blindness and deafness? So this um, this risk of liability is going to be hanging out there for 20 years after this decision. Yep. So remarkably for a populist administration that hates Silicon Valley, uh, the uh, administration is handing out, according to the New York Times, and I think they're right, some unrepealable legislative uh, uh, benefits to uh, Silicon Valley firms that depend on Section 230. Um, uh, uh, Nick, uh, what's the story there? So basically, the goal over the past several years in U.S. trade negotiations, and this actually started in the Obama administration and is therefore just carrying forward as basically anything that the administration doesn't care about goes on autopilot is basically enshrining the 230 type protections. That is, as a website, you're not liable in any civil context for data uploaded by your customers. And equally importantly, you're not liable for any reasonable measures, uh, any measures you adopt uh, in good faith to um, ride herd on your users, which is uh, probably the more controversial, at least in conservative circles, uh, 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 part of 230. It gives them an immunity for um, uh, what many would argue is a uh, uh, biased application of rules designed to stop hate speech or uh, uh, hurtful speech of various sorts. Well, in some ways, that's just a consequence of the truth having a notorious liberal bias. <laughs> but it really is that the CDA as implemented has been not just a shield against speech, but even product liability. So, uh, for example, there was a case in appeals that uh, the Supreme Court refused to grant cert on whether Grinder has a product liability tort 
for really egregious design and not cracking down on certain types of abuse. And basically, the Supreme Court lets stand the ruling that says CDA protects that as well, protects you from product liability, protects you from basically everything. And this is being enshrined in international trade agreements. This is what what's um, uh, troubling about this. I, I, it is understandable that when a new technology gets started, people want to protect it from liability that might throttle it in the cradle. And that's what Section 230 did. It was a, a, a bait-and-switch tactic on the part of then-nascent Silicon Valley in which they said, oh, yes, we'll support a Child Decency Act if you just put this one provision in here to protect us uh, when we try to preserve uh, uh, children from indecency. Uh, Then they turned around and uh, lobbied hard and litigated hard to kill everything about the uh, Communications Decency Act except this special provision. But nonetheless, you can you can justify it as something passed in the 90s in order to protect these this new platform. A lot harder to justify it in 2019. And yet what this uh, – adding this to the Japanese trade agreement, to the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, uh, trade agreement uh, uh, in a form that is actually probably a little broader than Section 230 uh, means that, one, it can't be examined individually because there's only an up or down vote on these trade agreements. So you have to take the whole package. Second, once it's been passed, it'll be international law. And if we decide that maybe – platforms have misused their Section 230 immunity uh, uh, and try to change the law, either Mexico or Canada can sue us saying that their companies are disadvantaged by a violation of a trade agreement. So it actually makes these uh, Section 230 supranational law in a way that uh, uh, strikes me as kind of completely inconsistent with the times when both Republicans and Democrats are questioning Section 230's scope. Yeah, and there's a probably a really good case for at least some narrowing of 230. I know I'll get pilloried for saying that, um, but there's enough cases where it's extent as a liability shield has extended well beyond what I think was intended. So one of the interesting things, I used to do a lot of international trade law, uh, what USTR does when they're negotiating these these deals is they are essentially assembling a legislative coalition of industries that will lobby to pass whatever free trade agreement they uh, adopt. And so they have to provide goodies for a whole set of industries that might otherwise oppose it or stay neutral. So this is a package of essentially domestic rules. There's some international trade value as well in getting rid of uh, duties or in overriding foreign um, uh, non-tariff trade barriers. But a lot of it is just stuff that people who otherwise might not lobby for your uh, uh, package want. Uh, And so what I think the real politic of this is that for both the Obama administration and the uh, uh, Trump administration, uh, they would like to have Google and Facebook and uh, America Online or Verizon, I guess they are now, uh, lobbying in favor of uh, uh, these trade agreements. And so they've offered them a deal which, you know, uh, there has not been a lot of foreign government action that is inconsistent with 230. Um, And so I think this is really about offering them the protections of a supranational um, uh, Section 230. Agreed. The Commerce Department uh, has become a new sanctioning authority. They've begun to use their sanction authority in creative new ways. Uh, uh, And they have used it recently against a number of pretty big companies in China. Nick? So, yes, these are sanctions intended to punish companies that are basically key components of, well, let's be honest, China's ethnic cleansing campaign in the Western part of the country. So surveillance firms, AI firms, etc., 
And uh, if the Chinese government wants to complain, I work at Leland Stanford Junior College. Yeah, but you know, you, 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 uh, LeBron James may come looking for you. <sighs> uh, yeah, he don't scare me. <laughs> but uh, so what is really happening is that these are very broad-based sa- sanctions on companies that are key components of the surveillance apparatus. Probably the the most obvious is Hikvision, which makes a whole bunch of cameras, etc. And I think it's going to have a significant effect on their U.S. sales. Um, truth be told that that we heard that the military had bought Hikvision cameras for a while just made me freak out. Oh, they and they're they're still trying to figure out how to get them all out of their systems. Yeah, fire and lots of it. However, how this will affect the companies themselves is less clear because although, for example, like this bans the uh, AI-based companies from buying Intel processors and graphics cards. It's going to be really hard to enforce those. That how do you does Intel know that the Chinese reseller it's selling motherboards to ends up selling those on to prohibited companies? So the the usual the usual practice is to write it into the contract and say you know you can't sell these products uh, on to people who are going to sell it to uh, to uh, a sanctioned party. But you know uh, there are notorious. Um, hubs for uh, laundering of U.S. products so they can be sold to Iran and other uh, places that uh, um, U.S. policy forbids them to be sold. What I think is interesting about this is it's been much rarer for the Commerce Department to say we're not going to allow U.S. companies to sell to individual companies that we don't like. Uh, they've mostly said, don't sell this to Iranian companies because uh, we don't want the technology to get into Iran. This is a much more fine-tuned uh, statement. We don't want U.S. companies to profit from uh, the uh, use of uh, cameras to suppress Uyghurs in the West. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, that, you know, the the announcement that particular companies or particular industries can't get U.S. technology is uh, creative and, and in some ways more fine-tuned than the use of treasury sanctions, where treasury would basically say, not only can't you sell them something, you can't collect on invoices for stuff you've already sold, you can't have a, you can't transfer money to them for any purpose, Uh, nobody in the United States can do that, no bank. That's become a kind of death penalty for companies. Uh, um, This just weans them off of U.S. technology uh, for better or for worse. Yeah, and it is it is refreshing to see decisions out of this administration that I greatly agree with being conducted with good care, that, that doing things more targeted like this really reduces the collateral damage, but really makes a statement that we should not participate and U.S. companies should not participate in campaigns of ethnic cleansing. Yeah, this is a little to my mind like using uh, antibiotics. Uh, You want to make sure that if you use the antibiotics, they actually kill the uh, the germs. Uh, you don't want to leave a few around to uh, um, develop a, a, a resistance. Uh, and I think if you're not careful with uh, uh, sanctions of this sort, uh, you're really just telling Hikvision to make sure their supply chain doesn't include any American uh, parts. And if there's one thing that only the United States make makes, uh, it's in China's interest to ensure that it's got a local champion who makes that product so that uh, in future, this kind of sanction won't harm their uh, uh, tech sector. Um, so that's that's the risk. Yep. And we'll see China continue to do to beg, borrow and steal. So 
it came out too late for the pod and there's going to probably be two more parts, but there's some reporting on um, China's theft of jet engine technology for yeah. their civilian airliner. I, I saw that, and I, I don't think we have time to cover it today, but we can leave it for next week because uh, um, it did look like a pretty substantial report from CrowdStrike, if I remember. Well, let's let's go deep into malware and uh, exploits for a minute. Uh, um, uh, there's a um, new compromise of TLS, which, of course, used to be uh, SSL, and uh, now, apparently, uh, after this exploit, stands for tough luck, sucker. Uh, uh, Nick, can you explain this? So this is a piece of probable nation-state malware, possibly targeted domestically in bulk, where it basically indicates its infection by modifying the TLS handshake so that somebody sitting on the wire can see where the infections are. And so this is probably an example of, uh, I forget which country it seems to be in, but it, it, how it's getting onto the computers is unknown. It appears to be intercepting unencrypted downloads and modifying them to include this malware. But the malware's communication through TLS is um, very innovative and kind of clever. Yeah, so the the soft attribution here is to the FSB in Russia. I don't think anybody is saying, yeah, no, we know for sure, but that there are reasons to think that, that it might be um, not GRU, uh, uh, but the FSB uh, um, that's using this. And I, I, you're right, it, it seems to be mainly aimed at domestic Russian targets, uh, who obviously uh, uh, became a lot less accessible if they wanted to go to Google. When, when TLS became uh, uh, standard. So uh, a, you can understand why this would have been a high priority and they seem to have come up with a clever uh, solution to the uh, desire to um, intercept the communications of individuals. Looks like it's individual, right? They, this is not something that is easily uh, uh, used for mass surveillance. Well, it depends on how the infections were conducted. I guess that's right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So I th- this probably should have been rolled into our discussion of uh, uh, the uh, 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 earlier Chinese story. Uh, uh, the on-again, off-again uh, uh, banning of an app that the Chinese government doesn't like that tells you where uh, the Hong Kong police are uh, out in strength uh, uh, I- I- by Apple is on again. Uh, they, uh, um, after taking grief, they took they reversed their ban, and then after taking grief from China, they said, "Oh yeah, no." Uh, and, and, and Tim Cook explained, uh, "This is a toxic app. It's uh, it's used." To- <laughs> All right, Nick. Uh, uh, so it, it's clearly toxic for Apple, uh, but uh, you, you're not buying his story? No, it is basically a pile of male bovine excrement because the Hong Kong police won't even stand behind those claims. That this is how people avoid getting trapped in protests and tear gas. And this is just part of a larger whole. So we also found out that Apple told the video makers for Apple TV Plus, don't piss off the Chinese. The NBA, one general manager tweeted out free Hong Kong and deleted it within 30 seconds, basically. And China went absolutely ballistic. And now you have... uh, have LeBron James acting like Dennis Rodman cozying up to the Chinese government. That's the same LeBron, that's the same LeBron James, if I remember, who called President Trump a bum and said that uh, uh, going to the White House would be an honor if Trump weren't in it. Uh, so he's uh, he's he's Mr. Bravery and uh, Mr. Truth Teller uh, when he's dealing with the U.S. government, which he knows isn't going to do anything to him. Uh, uh, but when money and endorsements are on the line in China, boy, suddenly he's uh, he's really upset uh, with the guy who tweeted uh, support for the Hong Kong protesters. 
or we have Steve Kerr, who is notorious as a coach for being willing to pontificate on everything, going, uh, I know nothing, I know nothing, going all full heart full uh, Sergeant Schultz. We have ESPN, including a map that has not only Taiwan as part of China, but this nine dash line. Um, oh, yeah. The one that includes Taiwan and uh, a few chunks of India and uh, most of the uh, Vietnamese coast uh, as Chinese uh, territory. It's it's, a, it's kind of it's an incredible uh, appendage uh, dropping off of uh, uh, China at the bottom. Uh, uh, I think they're jealous of Florida. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think I, I described it as a big swinging nine inch, uh, nine dash line. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, it is harder and harder for uh, Western organizations that have, are dependent on China to avoid kowtowing to China's demands, even when they're just talking in the West. Uh, and we're going to see much more of that. Uh, uh, and companies are going to have to choose. Uh, Apple's going to have to choose, which is going to be really painful. The NBA is going to have to choose. Uh, um, this is going to be a tough time for companies that sell a lot in China. The only people who have actually come off looking good is the South Park crew, which had done an episode picking on China for this behavior, and they let loose with a beautiful apology. I, um, I, I saw that, that they, where they said, and really, Xi Jinping, he doesn't look anything like Winnie the Pooh. Yep. Yeah. We good now? <laughs> okay. India is creating a facial recognition uh, uh, system, and the usual suspects are clutching their pearls over it. Uh, um, it. Basically, it turns out that if you don't include people of color when you're doing your uh, uh, facial recognition, your technology is evil. But if you do, it's even worse. So uh, you just can't win. Uh, uh, facial recognition is is um, is. is you know, October's Facebook. Yeah, Stuart. And and you keep seeing in the stories, as you said, this this great angst by the privacy advocates. And they say, well, this is a, a part and parcel of a surveillance state that Modi is trying to create in India. But they never really articulate why. They never tell us why it's such a terrible thing. Well, BuzzFeed – but what BuzzFeed does in place of that is, is it says right-wing populist – 20 times when it's talking about this particular uh, Mahdi government. Well, exactly right. So they don't like the government. So whatever the government does is by necessity bad. Um, but they never take on the new – just the technology itself. So whether it was Modi doing it or it's the most social democratic Norwegian state doing it, no one's articulating why this is such a terrible thing. And, well, uh, if you trained it on Norwegians, that would be racist. So that's <laughs> that's the key uh, here. There's always – they can win no matter what. Well, it's just uh, – you know, as as we've talked about this many times before, it, it sounds like the same sky is falling attitude that privacy advocates had when it came to caller ID, yep. when it came to uh, use of internet – and uh, when it came to the Patriot Act and, oh, my gosh, the government can go to a library and subpoena records to see if you're checking out books about how to make bombs. Yeah. Um, so it's just it's part and parcel of the same kind of inanity that ensues whenever some new technology. So I once unleashed. gave a speech uh, on this topic to at Aspen called Privacy as a Moral Panic. I and it's not just. It, it, it's not just that there's one moral panic. Moral panic is the privacy organization's business model, right? They find a new technology. They find some way it could be inconvenient for uh, privacy. They, they say the sky is falling. And if they can catch people at that moment when they've just begun to realize that this technology is going to change their lives and not all of the changes are good, they – hope to turn it into some legislative ban on the technology. And if they miss that moment, people get used to it. They say, oh, those bad things didn't really happen. Uh, and the, the caravan moves on. 
Yeah, I think there's a terrific opportunity for an enterprising um, doctoral student to do a thesis on what if the privacy advocates had won at every step of these battles over technology? What would the world look like? Well, Gmail would not exist. There was a whole boycott Gmail thing because they're reading your G- your I, mail. I, I question whether our smartphones would be back to the Nokias we carried 25 years ago. Yep, I, I think that's probably uh, uh, fair. Nick? CISO wants the uh, – this is DHS's uh, uh, com- uh, cyber uh, security and information – infrastructure security uh, administration – wants to be able to subpoena ISPs to identify the owners of vulnerable systems. I assume these are systems that are acting in a way uh, uh, on the network in a way that shows they've been compromised. Yes. And so recently there's been um, research. Um, in fact, uh, one of Vern's students just got his PhD on the topic on how well notifications work. And so this is in one sense trying to work on how do you notify people that they have real problems. Um, the concern is not that it will be used in this manner, but it will be used as basically a backdoor subpoena to get records that they'd otherwise not be able to get for other purposes. Well, they can't get any records without a subpoena. So if you don't have the subpoena authority, you're, uh, no uh, ISP is going to tell you anything. And so you can say, I have this IP address. It is uh, advertising every 30 seconds uh, its uh, desire to be compromised uh, um, or the fact that it's already been compromised. But I don't know who it belongs to, and so I can't call them up and tell them uh, that they need to do something about that. Uh, um, And, you know, it it strikes me as about time somebody did something about this. Uh, The the ISPs are not going to do something because if they send out the notice, uh, and this was uh, a suggestion that uh, Herb Lynn had in Lawfare, he said, well, maybe you don't need to get the information about the subscriber from the ISP. You can just have the ISP send them notice. But what happens after that is the people say, I just got this notice from Verizon or AT&T or Comcast. They call Comcast on the helpline. They spend half an hour on the helpline trying to figure out what's wrong. Uh, And the entire profits earned that year on that customer have been burned up uh, in help calls. Uh, uh, So they're not going to send out mass uh, notifications of compromise. Uh, So the U.S. government- Well, actually, they have. Really? Yeah. So Comcast, during the uh, DNS changer incident, did a lot of notification of customers. And in fact, they um, got grief from some by doing- um, web traffic insertion for notifications. They did a whole bunch of A-B testing to see which notif- whether one method worked better than the other. Oh, good for them. But this was during a very huge event. So this was the whole DNS changer where you had hundreds of thousands of infections to clean up. Well, among the, among the problems that this addresses is the use of U.S. compromised machines for DDoS attacks. I mean, the U.S. is the largest single source of DDoS attacks in the world, uh, and it's because uh, unlike other places, we don't have any mechanism for telling people whose machines have been compromised and are being used in DDoS attacks that they've been compromised, except by asking the ISPs to burn up their entire year's profits and help calls. Yep. And so I do agree that this is something that the notification really should be a government function just so that all customers get the same treatment, regardless of how good or bad your ISP is. And so I actually think this is a good idea. So the um, uh, Matthew, there was a story uh, that we covered a couple of weeks ago in which the uh, French said, uh, oh, sovereignty, it is the most important thing. Uh, anytime you touch one of our machines, you have interfered with our sovereignty. Um, uh, and now it turns out that they have been sending out uh, – they, they – teamed with Avast to uh, take down a a tax structure that mostly had focused on parts of Latin America, and they basically sent out the cure to these machines without uh, getting the Peruvian government's authority or anything. The the 
Peruvian sovereignty apparently doesn't matter much. That's right. And I just want to note for your listeners that despite the image that it may have been conjured in your mind about Pepe Le Pew with Stuart's <laughs> accent, I can assure you there's no white stripe on Stuart's back. Um, but you're absolutely right. So the French published this very stern paper about how not only – so there's a debate in the, in the world of international cyber law about whether sovereignty is violated if you step onto a network versus if you step onto a network – and you do something to alter it, to damage it. And some people say the alteration and the damage is the violation of sovereignty. The French said, no, no, no. Just getting on the network, just getting on that other person's lawn violates the sovereignty. And it seems that the French probably take it very seriously when it happens in France. But when they're doing it to most of Latin America, it's no hold. Well, you know, it could be. It's with French police. They say, hey, you know, we're, we're the police. Those guys who write the rules over in uh, the KDSA, uh, they just got their heads in, let's say, the clouds. Uh, uh, OK. Um, uh, always fun to uh, catch the French uh, being hypocritical. And – Last, there was a story from a guy who was a ransomware victim who, after he'd paid the ransomware, went out and uh, figured out how the infrastructure that had infected him worked, found the C2 machines. At least I'm inferring this from how he describes this. Uh, uh, finds the C2 machines that are being used for the infrastructure, uh, uh, hacks them because they've been hacked before. Uh, and finds all the keys, which he then releases to people so that they don't have to pay the ransomware. This guy is hacking back. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act says that's illegal. I, I went on Twitter and said, uh, on what basis would you find that act illegal? Uh, it's not like you're hacking somebody in a way that would uh, lead to uh, a hacking war, right? You broke in and you found some information and you released the information. It's more like WikiLeaks than, than uh, a, a, an exchange of hostilities. I, it, it's kind of remarkable to me. People say, oh, well, he should have returned. He should have gone to the police. Uh, but, of course, the police are going to just ask him for help in getting onto these machines. Uh, and uh, uh, it would have taken longer. He might have lost his access. Uh, it strikes me as um, a pretty good example. Uh, you know, when, when you go in to find ransomware keys, it, it's even better than just uh, engaging in hacking to attribute – uh, some other more aggressive attack. Uh, this is just about getting the keys so that people who've been victimized aren't victimized anymore. Quick hits. Uh, the FISA court, there's an endless series of FISA court decisions uh, uh, that got play because the, the, the FISA court found that the minimization procedures used by the FBI had violated the Fourth Amendment uh, because they uh, uh, didn't properly account for searches of information that had been collected uh, using 702 about U.S. persons. Uh, uh, it's a pretty complex set of uh, uh, decisions. Things that I took away from this, one, contrary to what I thought when we were debating how 702 ought to apply, and I remember there was this little rifle shot uh, uh, amendment that said, well, when the FBI for non-national security purposes goes into a, a, a FISA uh, uh, intercept uh, database and looks for U.S. persons, we want to know about it and we want to have some, uh, uh, some, some rules around that, which I thought was going to be like never. Um, and it might be never. But Unlike the big intelligence communities, it looks like the FBI has a practice of just searching these databases routinely for everything. Just uh, I'm investigating XYZ. I'm going to put XYZ into every one of our databases to see if he pops up. Uh, and so there were three million queries against the database by the FBI, way beyond what other agencies have been doing. And so the FBI was, was um, stuck with – trying to find minimization rules that it could live with. And one of the rules it couldn't easily live with was you should identify in advance 
that you're asking for a U.S. person's information because that would mean that instead of just saying, I have a name, I'm going to stick it in the computer, they'd actually have to do some research on the name to determine whether it's a U.S. person. So it's going to uh, – and the court said, no, you have to do that. Uh, uh, and you can't just stick any name you encounter into this. You have to do an analysis either when you stick it in or when you pull it out. Uh, of whether it's a U.S. person and whether it's uh, subject to the, you know, whether it's really a national security search. Yeah, I think the other thing that's noteworthy about um, this latest kerfuffle is, from my perspective, having formally worked around these institutions, things worked exactly the way they were supposed to. This was brought to the court ultimately by the FBI. Yep. Uh, the court took a view on it that the FBI disagreed with. The FBI uh, appealed it to the FISA appeals court. FISA appeals court said, nope, the judge at the FISC got it right, and you need to amend your procedures. And they've done that, and now that judge has approved the amended procedures. So from my perspective, I don't think we can expect There's no scandal here, no. Of any of these intelligence uh, agencies, and I don't think we could expect perfection even if they were angels because of the incredible complexity involved in doing these things exactly the way the law envisions. And so that's why we have a FISA court. That's why we have lots of lawyers that cover this process, and I think it worked out the right way. Yeah, I think the other thing that bothers me, and I've this has bothered me about other decisions from the court, is the way in which they are – deploying Fourth Amendment analysis in, in an effort to tweak procedures that come to them to say, well, what you did violates the Fourth Amendment in the totality of the circumstances. But if you just do this one little thing, then it won't, uh, which strikes me as implausible as a constitutional analysis uh, uh, and much more focused on what they think they can demand of the agencies in this particular circumstance. Uh, um, uh, Judge Bates did the same thing. It's not, it's not a, a question of uh, uh, being a, a lefty judge. It's just the temptation to deploy the Fourth Amendment is very strong and I think not, not good for the Fourth Amendment or for the courts. No, I agree with you, Stuart, and I think there's there's you know analogies here. When you saw five, ten years ago, uh, Judge Rakoff in a completely different context, looking at uh, settlements between the government and private actors, and Judge Rakoff trying to get behind that, and saying, "No, that's not the kind of settlement I want," even though DOJ and the actor had agreed to it. And I think this is just the temptation of being a judge, which is, "No, I've got a better way to skin the cat," and everyone has to. You know, kind of dance to my tune, right? Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll out yeah. this heavy artillery and fire it off, and uh, uh, it's sort of like uh, uh, Kim Jong Un execution. That you don't come back from it uh, very well. Uh, this is a story I, I almost hesitate to cover it, but Wired went back to the Bloomberg story about the grain of rice and uh, super micro and said, hey, you know, that could have been done. I And, you know, Nick, I don't know. I, I think we all knew it could have been done. Uh, so this was sort of an odd story. I, and I guess uh, it discovering that it could be done for 200 bucks is kind of mildly interesting, but strikes me as a story that um, probably we shouldn't even be talking about. Yeah, that basically it's you can basically make a chip that fakes a keyboard. And that's what the person did was make a fake keyboard, built it into the inside of the serial port on a Cisco router so that when you power it on for the first time, it just basically types the magic commands of to open a backdoor. Yep. Personally, I think a cooler version of that is the keyboard with Wi-Fi that somebody built into a lightning cable. Yes, that's right. And, and they're now being uh, uh, made available widely uh, so, so that uh, you, can, you can hack your girlfriend and your, uh, um, uh, and your husband. There's a really uh, useful we, – we now have seen the uh, uh, U.S.-U.K. Cloud Act agreement uh, uh, and there's a useful discussion from Jennifer Doskal and uh, Peter Swire in Lawfare. I thought there were a couple of interesting things there that might be uh, that might be a little surprising. ISPs who don't like or platforms that don't like a particular order get a chance to take it back to uh, uh, the designated authority and say really uh, uh, we have some specific concerns about how this is being 
implemented. That's interesting, and I and a protection for privacy, assuming that the uh, platforms continue to play their role as um, uh, gatekeepers. There are use limitations. The usual use limitation of the UK saying, "Well, don't use uh, anything you get using this procedure from us in a death penalty case." The US has found an answer to that, saying, "And don't you use anything you get from us in a case that interferes with what we consider to be First Amendment rights." Uh, always nice to have something that says, you know, "Sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander," um, and uh, uh, there's this whole thing that if. If you gather information about somebody in France who's using, let's say, Gmail and you're the UK and you're investigating a French person, um, you, uh, you need to notify the French that you're getting information from Gmail about a citizen, at least in principle, unless it would interfere with the uh, investigation to notify them. All of that, I think, is uh, is pretty interesting. The one thing that I think is going to be problematic for the U.S. government is there's a longstanding relationship with the U.S. and the U.K. in which they don't spy on each other's citizens for the other. Uh, that is to say, uh, the U.K. doesn't spy on Americans and then provide the information to the United States government. They institutionalize that in the agreement. I think you know that's fine for the U.S.-U.K. I don't know when... When this agreement is now tabled for the French and the Germans and the Lithuanians uh, uh, and they ask for an assurance that the U.S. is not targeting their nationals, I think the U.S. is going to be a little less enthusiastic about this. I'm surprised that made it in uh, to what is likely to be the model agreement. You would have thought that would have been a separate protocol yeah, or exactly. a classified memorandum. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I would have expected as well. Uh, uh, and uh, last, Matthew, uh, the SISI, or mm -hmm. the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, uh, has released a second volume of its uh, investigation into what happened in the 2016 election. I didn't see any surprises. Did you? No. There were no real surprises. A couple of interesting nuggets. Uh, for example, they found that the Internet Research Agency during the primary contest in 2016 was also going after Rubio and Bush and Cruz. So that was somewhat interesting. Mm -hmm. um, they clearly had a horse they wanted to ride and they – Well, I, that was interesting because – when this first started, it was pretty clear Putin hated Clinton right. and would do anything to defeat her, including supporting Trump. Uh, but it looked as though he was the default beneficiary. Yeah. There's a suggestion in this report that maybe he was uh, – that, that at, at some point, the Russians decided, yeah, that, that Trump was a horse they wanted to ride. Exactly. And, and I think the other – I think most of the other findings are, are pretty much what we already knew or what had been reported. Um, but the, the, the final finding that I thought was of interest was that the activity level of the IRA and GRU actually increased after Election Day, uh, presumably in the hopes to sow further dissension in the country over the election results. So I just thought that was sort of interesting in terms of how much activity had happened pre and post election? Well, I, you know, and and that was a good investment. <laughs> that's, yes, that's, it's working out for them pretty well uh, at a minimum. All right, uh, that's our news roundup. It's gone a little long. I apologize, uh, and I want to talk to Sultan Meiji, uh, uh, who's right here in the studio. Sultan, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. And first, let me give you uh, the, our coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug, which you can uh, uh, take with you. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, uh, if you can uh, talk a little bit about your recent article saying that the U.S. is losing or has lost uh, the fight for quantum supremacy. Uh, uh, and uh, give us a, a, the 30-second version of your thesis. Sure. So this came out of some research and work over the last 10 years looking at investment in quantum computing as a applied capability, not as a theoretical or, you know, purely academic exercise. And the idea was to say, okay, let's survey what's actually been going on out there. Let's look at the resources. Let's look at the supply chains being developed to support it. Let's look at the software development infrastructure, et cetera. And what we discovered in that analysis was that better than 80% of the tens of billions of dollars per year being spent on quantum technologies is being spent by the PRC 
in ways that we have very little visibility to outside of the open environment. So they are they are really putting a lot of money into this. Absolutely. Um, and when you say they're putting a lot of money into well, first, we don't know exactly where they're putting it, um, but we've started to see some results from their expenditures. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a massive amount of software development expertise being activated inside of the PRC and their standard, in their kind of standard model. You know, they spend a lot of money on primary research. They spend a lot of money acquiring technology from other universes, some legal, some not legal. The end result of that, they turn around and have the ability to spin up delivery capability. So we saw this with BGI and Wuji in the genetics conversation seven, eight years ago, and you see a pattern of behavior, primary research into applied, and then this and then, human scaling activity. Right. And we saw them do that with quantum software development about 18 months ago. So it, it, what you're saying is they have a they have a model for how to commercialize and dominate new technologies. I, I would I would not just say commercialize because let's remember right. the, the, the PRC do, doesn't have that same separation between commercial and political function, right? So they, they have a they have a, a a model for how to take cutting edge technology and do the research and then pour money into the applications uh, and then we see the results of that once they've finished pouring the money in. Exactly right. Okay. So let's talk about – your thesis is they're doing that and have done that with yes. quantum technology. Yes. I, let me stop and ask – you know, what is quantum technology? Because uh, <laughs> you know, I, I understand – well, no, nobody understands quantum <laughs> mechanics, but I, I, I see what quantum mechanics is. Yeah. Um, there are things that are described as quantum technology, which have only a loose relationship Absolutely. to quantum mechanics. Absolutely. Can you can you give us some examples of quantum technology and how it sure. relates to quantum uh, mechanics? Sure. So what I'm <laughs> going to do is ignore 90% of what people call quantum technology because it is A, not quantum, and it is barely qualifies as technology. The hype marketing machines that started off with cloud computing have moved into artificial intelligence and are now in beginning to touch quantum have really taken over that conversation. Oh God, yes, so, of course they So have. we have to allow that the marketing guys have gotten involved and, you know, trust that, you know, if you, if you do, I've got a bridge. Right. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is let's talk about three types of technologies that are actually relevant to this conversation. The first is a general use quantum computer. And so you take a server sitting in some data center, you pull it out, you replace it with a different device, and that does the same kind of general use activities. Those machines are very difficult to build, very difficult to run effectively, and frankly, not that useful right now. You have to get to hundreds of qubits, which is a measure of computational power, to become interesting. And only now are we starting to see the first pieces of that technology emerge here in the West. Now, there's a hypothesis that the Chinese, I'm sorry, the PRC, I'm, I'm usually pretty specific, um, have some version of that. LeBron technology. James will be coming for you, too. I, I'm terrified. <laughs> can you tell? Um, they are that they have something like this. OK, that is a not very interesting thing. If you are hyper interested in this space and you want to figure out when, you know, Google releases a quantum cloud, great. Uh, call the guys at Rigetti and see when their device are generally available because they're probably the first in our in in the in the open western and and the big the big problem there is finding ways to isolate all these qubits and, exactly and right. keep them yeah. kind of in the sort of Schrodinger's cat state neither alive nor dead exactly uh, right. for uh, a long enough period of time for you to do the reasonable calculations you want to do right now you know, without betting on any horses, and I probably should disclaim that I am not a shareholder, Rigetti is the group to pay attention to here. Okay. They're, they're definitely farther ahead than anyone else. You know, hundreds of qubits is not is not far off for them. Wow. Okay. Um, I'll leave it at that. The, the second type of application are customized pieces of technology with specific use cases where you don't need the hundreds of qubits like you would in a general use capability. You need tens of qubits for a very specific function. So if you think about what high-frequency traders use FPGA cards for so that they can, you know, do nanoseconds. Oh, trading. so you want instantaneous communications. Well, you can instantaneous trans you know, computation ah. with a near field communication capability okay now that is actually the more that's the thing that makes me more nervous than the general use capability because if you look at ssl and i i love that you highlighted tls and somebody should probably call the fed because they they do love their old versions of tls you have the ability to break 
most of the encryption technologies that we are using in normal activity. So you can build a special purpose device to just factor numbers exactly and right. uh, uh, factor really big numbers. Very uh, quickly. Yes. And, and the concern is that they can do it fast enough that you could break something like SSL in real time. Yeah. And you could go right through the encrypted channel and it would just look like you hadn't encrypted anything. Yeah. I, so I don't know whether this works uh, uh, and Nick uh, will probably tell me I'm wrong. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I always envision this, you know, the, the one way of turning quantum uh, mechanics into something you understand is to say um, there are many, many worlds uh, and in one world – Schrodinger's cat has always been dead. In the other world, it's always been alive. When you open the box and find it alive, you are irrevocably launched into the world in which it was always alive. If you find it dead, you're irrevocably launched into a different world, and these worlds just can proliferate all the, uh, the time. And so I always think of quantum uh, factoring as saying to the um, a, a computer, take me to the world where this number's already been factored. And it says, yeah, there's many worlds. We can take you there right away. I, I, as you were saying that, I was just thinking of the most recent Avengers movie. I'm not sure why this kind of time travel, you know, multiverse right. thing. The thing that I would suggest people consider is is a slightly different met metaphor, which is digital computers are simply it's either a one or a zero. In this case, it can be both, and you opportunistically decide which one you're going to take advantage of. So you're right. basically saying it, it should be a one if the number's been factored, and not if it's not, and, exactly. and, and bang. Right. But again, you know, I, I hesitate to use these kinds of deeper metaphors, mostly because they're all wrong. Well, well, pretty much everything in quantum mechanics is wrong to right. begin with. So we right. Except issue. the rules, right? The rules are right, but the, but the, the, the ways we explain them to ourselves are wrong. And, and if Dr. Einstein was sitting here, he'd be yelling at us for, for even having the conversation. Yes. Right? The, the applied side of this is, is the more is the is the different thing, because it's not that we have to establish that these things work. We know they work. It's not that they are easy or hard. They're very hard, but we are learning very rapidly. And I say we as humans. So, so you do, you only need like 10, 20 10, qubits 20, yeah, to, like to, to, to factor? With, uh, with, the... with the application of two things, a massive farm of software developers. Right. And I can point you to a building on Google Maps that has a massive farm of software developers in the PRC. And the second is artificial intelligence. And so the decades of activity in artificial intelligence in parallel that the PRC has been exploiting solve this problem much more efficiently. Wow. And so I am personally of the opinion, only my opinion, that within the next 18 months, we will see the impacts of these kind of specialty devices in the cybersecurity infrastructure in the United States. Wow. Okay. So that's that's coming soon. Uh, and presumably somebody in the U.S. government is looking to factor uh, large numbers themselves. Uh, I, if I were NSA, that I would think that was core to my mission. But it's kind of cold comfort to know that you can decrypt uh, other people's communications if they can decrypt yours. Yeah, I think the concern, I mean, there's obviously a public sector and a national security concern for the United States. I think there's a bigger a bigger issue in our financial sector. Yes. Um, and, and that's certainly obviously where I'm spending more time looking at this. I mean, the, the average banking core in the United States is, you know, from, from the George W. Bush administration and the ability for those organizations to even do basic cybersecurity hygiene and cyber, cyber debt management is, is, is questionable. I, I think you remember some quotes of mine from other circles. Yep. This. Um, well, and, and, and I, I, I love that uh, uh, somebody is just going to announce that we've taken all the rest of the Bitcoin. Because we've, we, we've, we've just done the computations necessary and we have that all. I would be more concerned if all of a sudden a, a major credit card provider in the United States magically saw their interest rates changing and massive amounts of cash flow flying to banks outside of the United States and they don't understand what chart changed that happening. And all of a sudden the cash imbalance between the PRC and the US all of a sudden looked slightly more favorable to the PRC and we don't really understand how that math changed. So what's the recommendation? This is, this is clearly technology where with some engineering and uh, – uh, advances, it, something's going to happen. Right. Um, obviously, we should 
be able to do the same thing so, to other people's So that gets computers. to the third but, category. Yep. Okay. So thank you for teeing that up. Yep. Uh, the, the third category is quantum hardening. You do not need a quantum computer to defend against a quantum computer. Right. And, and so one thing that we, as a as a as not just a public sector dialogue, but across the commercial sector and, and everywhere else, we need to focus more on quantum hardening our existing systems. So that's everything from the basic, the 101 level stuff, cyber hygiene, cyber debt management, et cetera. But you also have to get to the point of saying, okay, SSL is not the strategic long-term solution. You don't think doubling the key, set, the key size will do the job? I, I think you have to move to entirely different algorithm sets. I think right. you have to look at lattice encryption. I think you have to look at a bunch of other math that gets you to highly harder to factor platforms. So the, the thing that always makes me worry about that is um, – um, new crypto is bad crypto. Uh, no matter how good the author is, there's something they didn't think of. Absolutely. And Absolutely. that means that we'll be diving into a whole new set of vulnerabilities that we can't see. Except two things that I'd like to add on that. First of all, it's NIST crypto, which means NIST standard development process tends to be very good because that's what gave us AES and SHA-3. And also, any use of a post-quantum key exchange is going to be wrapped in a conventional key exchange. So you'd need to break both the post-quantum algorithm and the conventional factoring. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I appreciate both of those two comments. I, I would say that the paste of NIS operations will not turn this new crypto into old crypto to satisfy Stuart's desire for old crypto, um, certainly while I have any not white hair left. Um, yeah. That process is unbelievably slow and highly inefficient and frankly disconnected from what most of the commercial sector is doing. And and it, 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 the only thing that uh, uh, got NIST and the uh, uh, private sector uh, moving uh, in the past has been fears that uh, NSA could break their crypto. I think, the, you know, uh, you can get more paranoia about NSA than about uh, the PRC uh, out of the traditional uh, cryptographic community. Well, and on top of that, you know, there's the, there's been this evolution over the last couple of decades for the removal of federal funding from these processes. You know, when I started my career as an AI researcher 25 years ago, all the AI research monies were coming from NSA. SF and DOD and NSA and places like that. And that's the universe I grew up in. If you look at the money being applied to the cutting edge issues, AI, quantum, et cetera, a tiny percentage of it is coming from traditional funding sectors. I think you've heard me give the speech about, you know, you hear the policy sector talk about engaging academia to drive industry. Well, that sequence is no longer the dominant sequence of where technical development is. I mean, in the next 18 months, quantum hardening is going to be in market and it's going to be in market in the financial sector. And it's not going to have touched the NIST process. It will not have touched any of the traditional, you know, policy to industry, to, to academic, to industry pipelines, frankly, because they move too slowly and there's no money in it. Okay. One technology we haven't talked about uh, that the Chinese have been bragging about is the use of quantum entanglement to identify um, interception of communications. Uh, uh, they've launched satellites that do this. Uh, uh, it takes advantage of the fact that uh, you can have spooky action at a distance, as Einstein uh, talked about it. Basically, you entangle a couple of uh, electrons, and no matter how far apart they are, if you change one, the other one is changed as well. Um, and so the theory is if you set up your communications so the only way to get access to it is to change the electron, then you know, an interception, an eavesdropper will signal his existence by changing the electron. You know, that sounds cool. <laughs> but, you know, as I thought about it, knowing that there's an eavesdropper is only the beginning. You don't know where he is. Uh, you don't know what he heard. Uh, you don't even know if he broke the encryption. You just know he was there. I, you know, I, I would have thought that the way to deal with that is to set up as many interceptors as possible so that they're constantly being told, oh, yeah, the entangled con uh, electron went down again. Uh, and they have no idea who's doing it where it's happening and how significant it is. So I wonder if this is really as 
spooky as it sounds. A, a great point. I mean, to me, three things come out of the satellite conversation in particular. Number one is you can't discount the fact that China, the, the PRC is playing a longer game. And so it's possible this was just an opportunistic ability to get hardware in a certain place and, and stuff like that. Second, as I'm sure you will you will agree with, this is also a hype machine, right? I mean, the right. PRC is absolutely trying to make its case very quietly that they're generations ahead of everyone else, right? The third is they probably don't have as much visibility to what's happening in the commercial sector and quantum computing in the West as they would like. Those organizations... Uh, so this this kind of forces people to respond exactly in some way. Right. Exactly right. It's it's also for them to launch a satellite to do this is not that big of a deal. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Hype is a real risk. All governments function more or less the same way. And physicists in the West have demonstrated a remarkable capacity to uh, uh, blind legislators into giving them vast amounts of money with... Uh, uh, smoke mirrors and uh, science. Wait, wait, hold on. The quantum transporter isn't a th real thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I, you know, electron by electron. So yes, I, I'm sure that that would work uh, just fine for you if you, if you don't mind being broken down and reassembled that way. I, uh, but yes, I. Uh, I'm sure the Chinese system works at least that way. And since it's probably less subject to um, scrutiny by independent journalists and investigators, it there's probably more hype uh, in the Chinese system than ours, uh, generated maybe not by the government, but by the physicists themselves. Well, and then finally, there's the distraction capability, right? Um, whether or not it's U.S. foreign policy being distracted by recent news in Syria or or other actions over the last few years, there's an opportunity for you know the Chinese, I'm sorry, the PRC, to, to push a broader agenda and push an ability to distract from this. So let's just say you're a limited resource you know, organization in the United States, you have five things you can invest in, and there are 25 things on your radar. You have to pick your targets. And the fact is, simply by demonstrating a version of this capability, whether or not it's real, whether or not it even works, it is just something else that is distracting relative to all the other problems that we have to solve. Right? Yeah. So uh, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's the Chinese doing to us what we did with the, to the Russians with uh, Star Wars. Uh, say, oh my God, we'll never be able to spend our way to solve that problem. And of course, we, we never found a way to do it, uh, but they, ha they had to worry about overcoming it. Well, I mean, the PRC sometimes is not exactly known as creating things themselves. They, they tend to just borrow things from other people. So if they're looking at how Star Wars you know, helped to bankrupt the Soviet Union, maybe they have two options here. One is to actually demonstrate technical capability because we can't keep up, or the second is to have us waste our money on things that they know we can't get to. And at the end of the day, anything that compromises U.S. research activities or Western research activities helps their longer-term economic goals. I think it would be cheaper to support Medicare for all, but uh, that's just me. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so last question. Uh, we've sort of talked about the implications of various uh, um, applications of uh, quantum technology. Uh, where do you think you, we should be putting our, our funds? You said coming up with quantum resistant uh, 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 encryption is a high priority and an Im immediate priority. It doesn't require quantum research. It just requires research. Um, what, what would you do in the quantum area? It's a great question. And, and because I'm a multitasker, for me, I would look where the biggest bang would be. And right now, we have such a cyber debt issue in the financial sector. I mean, you have the Fed running ancient versions of TLS. We have banking systems older than Croesus. For us, let's find ways where investments in quantum technology are in line with investments in other areas that move us forward. And frankly, the financial sector of the U.S. is two generations behind everyone else. And I think we could we could really do with some extra resources there. Okay. That's Sultan Meji. Uh, that's M-E-G-H-J-I uh, from Neocova. He's the CEO of Neocova. Uh, uh, thanks to Matthew uh, Hyman and Nick Weaver, who both stuck around for this one because they uh, thought it was particularly interesting. Uh, uh, this has been episode 282 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please do send us your guest suggestions. Uh, uh, to, uh, that's cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com to send that. Uh, follow me on Twitter and, uh, you know, this this week I actually did get out some suggestions for stories uh, so you can see what I'm thinking about uh, talking about on the show uh, and uh, leave us a rating uh, uh, and a review on whatever your uh, podcast aggregator of choice is. Coming up we're going to be talking to the former chief uh, of the Office of Civil Liberties, Privacy and Transparency at the uh, Director of National Intelligence. Uh, Brad Smith uh, swears he's going to 
going to come on in November and talk about his new book. Uh, uh, so please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.